Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. You can view the live stream on Facebook at Mother Miriam Live. Now, here's Mother Miriam. Good morning, beloved family. How are you, dear ones? I'm so happy to be with you. Uh, We are audio today, not audio and video. We should be back on video tomorrow. God bless you. And, you know, I wasn't with you yesterday. We had a run in Encore. But I want to tell you how much I love you and thank God for you. Last week on the fun drive for the Station of the Cross, you really came through so so wonderfully. You made my heart sing. I thank you for your love for him, for your love for souls, for your support for the Station of the Cross. Um, I tell you, we're in this together, dear ones, and I'm I'm just so thankful for you. I wrap my arms around you if I could, so I give you a big hug um, right through the internet and radio to where you are. Um, and we will continue today with, you know, I, I take a look at, at the news in the morning and I take a look at it at night. And I probably shouldn't do that every day, but I do. And things are, they're so bad and getting so much worse every day. It's, it's a different world than I was even born into, although the evil was rampant then too, but not so Uh, blatant as it is today. It's so amazing. And we cannot put fires out. Uh, We just need to become holy, to protect our families, to protect our spouses, our children, our parents, to grow in holiness, to love God, to come apart from the world, to be in it and not of it, and ask God that through our lives, even though we fail, Yet through our lives, we would bring others to him while there is yet time, while it is yet day. I don't think we have too much time more left uh, to have the freedom to speak freely and to help others to know God and to be saved. Um, There is only one faith. God has not willed multiple religions. He has founded the Catholic Church, Catholic meaning universal, Um, which is the full flowering of what he gave to the Jewish people. And so Israel is the caterpillar, the church is the butterfly, the full flowering of of God's people. And to be out of it is to be out of the realm of salvation. So, um, beloved, uh, we cannot think like the world. We cannot say, yeah, but he's a better, I'm a Christian, I'm a Catholic, but he really is a better person than I am. Well, we're not saved based on being good people because every one of us has sinned and come for, short, fallen short of the glory of God. Every There's not a soul except the Blessed Mother who has not sinned. And every one of us need a Savior. That was Israel's failure. God gave them the law, which they could not keep. And so they made up laws which they figured they could keep. But that has nothing to do with God. God said they have to be perfect as he is perfect and they said but we can't be perfect 
And that's what God wanted them to understand. They cannot be perfect. No one can be perfect. We are fallen, sinful human beings. And God's heart for Israel was for them to say, Lord, Lord God of Israel, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you are perfect. And your law is holy and perfect. But we can't keep it. And if we can't keep it, you told us that we're doomed. So if we make up our own laws, it'll mean nothing. That's what they should have said. We need you to save us, Lord. But instead, they made up their own laws or simply ignored the law God gave and thought little of it. And therefore, whoever does that is doomed to an eternity apart from God, which is the definition of hell. And so God wanted them to say, your law is holy and righteous and good as you are, Lord, but we can't keep it. Help us. We need, apart from you, we could do nothing. We need a savior. And God would have said to them, bullseye, thou you got it. You need a savior. And God, because he's faithful, not because of Israel's faithfulness, but because God is faithful, brought the savior of the world through the people, Israel, that he created for himself. And the Messiah came first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. He came through Israel, for Israel, and for the whole world. There's no plan B. That was God's plan A right from the beginning, that he would form a people from himself, from Adam and Eve on, and through that people, he would bring the Savior. Did he bring the Savior through the Jewish people because of their faithfulness? I wish, <laughs> but no, it was because of God's faithfulness that he brought the Savior. And so those of the Jewish faith through whom the Savior came would be saved if they believed in the Messiah, which in English is the Christ. It's not his name, it's his title. The Messiah means the anointed one, the one through, uh, from all eternity, God planned to come to be the sacrifice that would do what a million sacrifices of the old covenant could not do. And so the first Christians, to be a Christian uh, is to be a follower of the Christ. In Hebrew, Mashiach, translated into English is Messiah, into the Greek of our Lord's day is Christos, and into the English of our day is Christ. Mashiach or Messiah and Christ are the same word translated from the Hebrew to the Greek, um, uh, and is his title. His name is not Mr. Christ. He is Jesus, which means salvation, uh, and he is the Christ, um, the Savior, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Anointed One. And so when God came, uh, he sent his Son. Christ is the Son of God and God the Son. He is God, and he came to earth miraculously, took up residence by the Holy Spirit in the Blessed Virgin Mary, who was born without sin and became man for us and died for us and rose from the dead for us. And the first human beings to believe that are the people through whom and to whom he came. Those were the Jewish people, the children of Israel, through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and the family of David, all the way to Christ, who is the son of David, who is the Messiah. Mary is also from the line of David, who is his earthly mother, 
and um, Joseph, who was his foster father, yet came through the royal line of David. So the first Christians, that is, you could say the first Messiah ends. The first Messiah ends. How do you, M-E-S-S-I-A-H-I-A-N. I-A-N is a suffix, which one adds to a word meaning uh, possession. It's a suffix of possession. So if you, um, uh, how do we say, if you uh, are a smith and you have someone who belongs to you, you have a slave who you've taken on as part of your family. In the, on our Lord's Day, they would take your name and be called Smithians, S-M-I-T-H-I-A-N-S, meaning you belong to Smith. And when our Lord came, the Jews were um, uh, subject to the Romans. They were slaves. And in, in the day of a slave, when you uh, worked for a family for so long, it was to be at the Jubilee year, um, you were uh, to have your freedom. But a family of slaves grew up, they grew up with you. They, had, they married, they had children. Your children and their children loved each other. They played together. And so it was time for you to set them free. They said, we don't want to be free. We love you. We want to continue to live with you and serve you forever. We want to be, as the Apostle Paul says, bond slaves. That is, slaves of their own free will. Apostle Paul called himself a bond slave of Christ because he was a slave of his own free will. And so the bond slave would take on the name of their owner of their master. And so again, if your name was uh, Smith, it would be called Smithian. Uh, if it was uh, anything, pick any name and add the suffix I-A-N, which means belonging to. Well, when the Jews who did not believe mocked the Jews of our Lord's day, who did believe, he was the Christ the Christ. And so they mocked him by saying, you are his slaves. You are Christians. They gave him, they gave the Jews the name of Christ and tacked on the suffix I-A-N. You follow him, you wayward Jews, you're Christians. And they were first called Christians, or as we say today, Christians at Antioch, the scriptures say. And because they were the free will, bond slaves of Christ. And we call ourselves Christians today, Christians, because we are the followers of Christ. That's what Christian means. That's what Christian means. It means a bond slave of Christ. It means a disciple, a follower, mathetes in, in Greek, a follower of Christ. That's what a Christian is. And the first followers of Christ were all Jews because Christianity is Jewish. It came through the Jewish Messiah and through Israel, and then by God's command, spread through the uh, all the world to all the peoples of the world, bond or free, a slave or Scythian, Greek or Jew, it doesn't matter, to all the nations of the world through the Jewish people. Christianity is Jewish, beloved, and it is for every single soul throughout the entire world. If you are a Christian, are you therefore a Jew? No. You are a follower of the Christ, who is the Savior of the entire world. We'll be right back, beloved.
Hi, this is Jim Havens, co-founder of the National Men's March to Abolish Abortion and Rally for Personhood. Some truths are self-evident, some rights are unalienable. It is a scientific fact that life begins at conception fertilization. It is a foundational moral truth that we ought not murder innocent human beings. Every human being is a human person with a right to life and the equal protection of law according to the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Yet we have an ongoing daily mass murder of our little pre-born brothers and sisters. It's time for all men and women of goodwill to rise up together in the public square and say no more. Come join us in Albany, New York on Saturday, June 3rd. Men, let's go first and gather at 9 a.m. for the Men's March. Women, we need you to join us at 10.45 a.m. for the Rally for Personhood outside of the New York State Capitol. We'll have some great speakers along with terrific opportunities for formation and fellowship before and after. Go to themensmarch.com for all the details. See you in Albany. Hello, beloved. This is Mother Miriam. How would you like to wake up each morning to inspiring sermons from knowledgeable and faith-filled priests? You can tune in to Sermons for Everyday Living every day at 6 a.m. Eastern on the Station of the Cross. You can listen on thestationofthecross.com or anytime on the free iCatholic Radio mobile app. God bless you. Are you ready to take on the world of flesh and the devil with just the facts? This is Jesse Romero, host of Jesus 911, heard weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. I'm joined each day by a variety of co-hosts like Ruben Avam, Paul Clay, Dan Schneider, and my amazing wife, Anita Romero. We tackle Catholic devotions, spiritual warfare, family life, saving America, and everything in between. Join us each weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific for Jesus 911. God bless you. Keep the faith. Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. Welcome back, beloved, to Mother Miriam Live. I am she, uh, audio today. And I'm thrilled to be with you. And, you know, I listened to the announcements at the break with you, and they're so encouraging. I have goosebumps listening to Jim Havens and Jesse Romero. Isn't it wonderful when we have such uh, uncompromising, committed, sold-out Christians for our blessed Lord, who is worth our all? I I love listening to Jim Havens. I love the Men's March. I love his work. I love his message, which is God's message. And um, when I uh, was at a mother-daughter dinner speaking, and we were giving a prize to the newest mother, um, the prize went to the one um, most newly pregnant, who knew she was pregnant. Maybe she was a month pregnant. She was the youngest mother. And some people said, well, what if the baby doesn't come to term? doesn't matter. She's still a mother. It's a full person in her. doesn't become a person. It grows uh, the way that when we are born from our mother's womb, we grow. Uh, a newborn baby is not as uh, the, the adult is. Um, there's tremendous growth, but uh, the newborn baby is a full person. Nobody argues that except those who are filled with evil and uh, would kill a baby born from its mother's womb or as it's being born. That's pure evil. 
absolutely pure evil. So, uh, mothers, if you're pregnant, uh, God bless you. We pray for you. We pray for the baby in your womb. And you, uh, whether you plan this or not, are already a homeschooling mom because you are growing up that little baby in your womb at home. And when that baby is born, you're going to love that baby and diaper the baby and hug her or him and feed her or him and teach him to walk and to talk and to speak. And you are homeschooling that little baby. And when that baby reaches three or four or five or six, God help us if we turn that baby over to the world. Don't do it. Don't do it. Sacrifice everything you have to sacrifice now. Start planning now. Save your pennies now to stay home and continue to love and raise and nurture that child in the faith and homeschool that child. So many mothers say, I don't want to ruin my child. I want to make sure they have an education. If you turn them over to the world, you will ruin them. Not the world won't ruin them. You will ruin them by turning them into that fire. It's terrible. They need you and they need what beautiful Catholic homeschooling um, programs can give them through you at home and through your love. Don't worry about that. Um, if you're worrying about being perfect, if you're worrying about being overwhelmed, pit that against the evil of the world. Even many today, if not most Catholic schools, Catholic schools are teaching gender ideology, there are all kinds of things. And children are coming in who are n not raised well in Catholic homes, and they're affecting your children. And um, if you complain about the schools, by the time you complain, it's too late. It's too late. Many children come home, tell their moms what's going on, and the moms go to school and complain. That's extremely backwards. Why would you turn your child into a building and have the child come home and say, mom, the building's on fire. And the mom says, okay, you go back in tomorrow. I'll talk to the principal. It's insane. It's insane. You have a stewardship to raise your children, mom. And God will always, always provide. He will always provide. He'll find a way for you to support your family. And if you're a single parent and you absolutely must go to work and you cannot find suitable work to do from home, uh, look for a homeschooling co-op. Go to your diocese. Find out, go to a Latin parish. They usually have homeschooling co-ops. There are mothers who stay home and who will take your children and, and homeschool them uh, in their home instead of yours. It's not as good as you're homeschooling them, but it is a thousand times better than turning them over to the school system. Um, so um, I would beg you, but my begging you means nothing. Um, if you see your children grow up and turn from God and turn from you, uh, you will see the fruit of turning them out to the world. You will see the fruit of their um, being taught that there's no authority, there's no supreme being, uh, there's no respect, and they could dress the way they want. The minute your daughter comes home and says, Mom, they're all wearing skirts above their knees and she's miserable. And, and you're saying, well, no, you don't because we need to be modest. She's not learning beauty and loveliness. She's learning uh, to, um, uh, to not 
love you, to not respect you, to not understand priorities. I know children of children who go to school in long skirts and take a short skirt with them and change at school, or shorts and change at school. It's horrible, beloved. Um, if you're a mother or father, don't put your children out into the world. If you're going to send them to school, you better go first and learn out, learn what they're teaching and see the books and go through them and be able to absolutely opt out any class that you don't want your child to be a part of. And if the teachers say, this is private, we don't show it to parents, you better not put your children in there because you will be responsible for destroying them, for putting them into the fire. The world is getting worse, my dear ones, and we need to begin to live as God would have us to live, being home, loving your family. Mom, go home and be a true wife to your husband. Uh, dress lovely. Don't wear jeans in the home and a skirt outside. The home is where we learn. If you're ever going to wear a dress, wear it at home. Let your children and your husband see loveliness. Let your hair be kempt and, and your dress modest and lovely. When I grew up, there was no such thing as a woman wearing slacks. Well, maybe there was, but not in our home. And we had what was called house dresses. My mother wore them all the time. Beautiful dresses, proper, proper length, proper coverage. They were just a little easier, kind of wrap around. And they were for home, and they were beautiful. So the better clothes could be saved for more important times. But it was always beautiful. No one dressed when we went outside. We got up and we got dressed and we were appropriate, so we could have gone anywhere. Um, moms, you have little idea what power you have over the future of your children and the success of your marriage. When your husband comes home from work, you should be before him as you would have been on your first date. You will not believe how your marriage will change if you're beautiful for your husband if you're modest for him, if your house is what it should be, and don't, if you have 10 children, don't say, I can't keep up, because you can. That's why God has given you all those children. At age five, I was ironing and dusting and cleaning, not because we were slaves, but because we took responsibility, and our parents raised us to do that. So um, when we have our break, beloved, at uh, oh, about five minutes from now, we'll have a whole half, whole half hour for you to call in. And I would urge you to do that, to find out or to get ideas. We'll put our heads together on how you can stay home, how you can raise your children, what you can do when your husband doesn't agree with you or when your husband is not Catholic uh, or when your wife is not Catholic and she doesn't agree and your wife dresses like the world as well. So how could she teach her children? Um, everything's not perfect, but we can work toward it, beloved. We can work toward it, beloved. Um, and if we follow God and we grow in union with him and we grow in virtue, we can learn to love those who God has given us, even as God loves us. We're right in the middle. We won't have a lot of time this morning but God's wonderful divine attributes. And on number seven, it says God is supremely good. That is, he loves his creatures far more than a father loves his children. You see, 
And so if you wonder if you love your children well and perfectly, just look at how God loves you and you will have the answer. And you could say, do I love my children like that? God loves his creatures and loads them with benefits. He is love himself. We can be loving, but God is not just loving. It's what he is. Reverend Sparago says, the spring cannot but send forth water and the sunlight. The goodness of God differs from that of his creatures, as the sun differs from the light shed upon a wall. His creatures are good because God sheds his goodness on them. And hence, our Lord says, none is good but one, and that is God. The love of God extends to all the creatures that he has made. And you say, does that mean me too? Of course it means you too. Of course it means you too. Can you breathe? Yes. Do you have the ability to love? Yes. Do you have the ability to be loved? The answer is yes. And sometimes, dear ones, this is my comment now, um, people who um, have been through rough times and know what it is to hurt and to suffer, they can often love others more than they can accept being loved by others because they've been so abused and so betrayed. Sometimes receiving love is harder than loving. But our Lord tells us that our ability to love others is based on our ability to receive love. The love of God extends to all creatures that he's made. As the sun lights up the boundless firmament, so God extends his goodness to all creatures. Not one of them is excluded from it. Not one of them is forgotten by God. But God has an especial love for mankind. He imparts countless benefits to them, and he sent his son on earth to redeem them. What wonderful bodies God has given us. He has bestowed upon us our senses and the gift of speech. How many gifts he has conferred upon our souls. He has given us understanding and free will and memory. My memory is failing, but I still have it. Our bodies, for our bodies, he gives us food and drink and clothing and health. How well he has provided for our necessities on this earth light and warmth, the air, the plants, the trees, and their fruits. How many powers he has implanted in nature for us to use for our own benefit, coal and salt and stone, marble, precious stones. He has, in fact, made man the Lord of the whole world. And he loves us, dear ones, far more than we love ourselves. His love for us is far greater than that of the fondest mother for her child. The love of all creatures for God is not nearly as great as the love of God for each one of us. But above all, God has shown his love for us in this, that he gave his only begotten son for us. Dear ones, there is our music coming up for our second break, and we will take um, we will take your calls and your emails um, right after the break. But think about this. God gave his only son for us. Which one of your children would you kill or let be killed for someone else? Rough question. We'll be right back. 
This is Franciscan Media's Saint of the Day for May 9th. Today we celebrate Saint John of Avila. Born in 1500 in the Castile region of Spain, at age 14, John was sent to the University of Salamanca to study law. Later, he studied philosophy and theology in Alcala before his ordination as a diocesan priest. As his parents' sole heir, John received a considerable fortune upon their deaths, which he immediately distributed to the poor. John traveled to Seville, hoping to become a missionary to Mexico. However, Seville's archbishop persuaded John to remain and minister to the inhabitants of Andalusia. Over the next nine years, John earned a reputation as an engaging preacher, a perceptive spiritual director, and a wise confessor. Not afraid to denounce vice in high places, John was investigated by the Inquisition, but later cleared. He counted among his friends such saints as Francis Borgia, Ignatius Loyola, John of God, John of the Cross, Peter of Alcantara, and Teresa of Avila. John worked closely with the Society of Jesus, helping it to grow both in Spain and in the Spanish colonies. John of Avila died in 1569, was canonized in 1970, and named a Doctor of the Church in 2012. His mystical writings have been translated into several languages. There's more about the saints along with inspiration and Catholic resources at our website, saintoftheday.org. From Franciscan Media, this has been Saint of the Day. Our family had been going through crisis. Little by little, we just found ourselves drifting completely away. I was afraid to go back. I mean, I cried the first time I received the sacraments again. Cried because I was back and because I had allowed God to become a part of me again. It's united our family. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. If you've been away from the Catholic Church for any reason, visit catholicscomehome.org today. Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. Welcome back, beloved, to Mother Miriam Live. I am she and live and on audio today versus video. We'll be back on video tomorrow, I think. Um, And I'm thrilled that we have this half hour together. Take your calls, your emails, whatever is on your mind. You can call or email anonymously, not an issue. The toll-free number 1-877-511-5483 or um, email at mother at the station of the cross.com. We have an email from Cynthia. Cynthia says, I have never read anything in the Bible that speaks of mortal or venial sin, nor have I heard that the scriptures came from the church. Can you comment on this, please? Yes, dear Cynthia. Um, your question makes me think that you are Protestant. Uh, you may not be. You may be an, um, a Catholic who has not been taught, but when I was in my Protestant years, um, I did not understand mortal or venial sin either, and uh, I was taught that the scriptures came, um, that the church came from the scriptures, not that the scriptures came from the church. So, on mortal or venial sin, venial is, I mean, no sin is good. Mortal means death, so that there is a sin that will that will kill our souls. Um, uh, 
Tim Staples, one of the greatest apologists ever, uh, he's with Catholic Answers, says the most common Bible verse used against the very Catholic and very biblical doctrines concerning mortal and venial sins is James chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. And it says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not kill. Um, Tim says the argument is made from this text that all sins are the same before God. But it's not true, dear ones. Um, uh, the context of James 2 reveals that St. James reveals St. James to be talking about showing partiality for the first nine verses leading up to verses 10 and 11. In verse 1, St. James says, My brethren, show no partiality as you hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. St. James then goes on to say that if we show partiality, for example, toward the rich at the expense of the poor, we fail to keep what he calls the royal law according to scripture, which says you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, then he says in verse nine, but if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. This is his lead into talking about keeping the commandments. So um, I don't want to read the whole article. Uh, let, let me just go back and see. L let me skip this because I'll uh, take up the whole program with it. What is mortal and venial sin? The Catechism of the Catholic Church says this in number 1855. Mortal, and again, the word mortal means death. Mortal sin destroys charity in the heart of man by a grave violation of God's law. It turns man away from God by preferring an inferior good to God. Venial sin allows charity to subsist, though it offends and wounds it. So if I take myself, if I take a really incomparable, really an example that's not comparable to this, let's say I have a friend and they wound me, they sin against me. Um, I, can, I can forgive them, but it's still a wound. It's, it's something that has created a slight distance between us, but not separated us. But if they sin mortally, let's just say, they will have committed such a sin against me that it, it's, I could feel humanly it's not reconcilable. Of course, in Christ, all things are reconcilable. But the Catechism said, Mortal sin results in the privation of sanctifying grace. Grace, beloved, is the very life of God in our souls. Sanctifying grace is the grace that purifies us. Um, and the privation of it, if we do not have grace, we do not have the life of God in us. So mortal sin results in the privation of sanctifying grace, that is, the state of grace. If it is not redeemed by repentance, and God's forgiveness, it causes exclusion from Christ's kingdom and the eternal death of hell. One commits venial sin when in a less serious matter, he does not observe the standard as prescribed by the moral law, or when that's venial, all right? That is not the sin that separates us from God. It's not the sin that kills the soul, but it's, it's still serious. 
he does not observe the standard prescribed by the moral law or when he disobeys the moral law in a grave matter, but without full knowledge or complete consent. Venial sin weakens charity and merits temporal punishment. Deliberate and unrepentant, venial sin disposes us little by little to commit mortal sin. However, venial sin does not break the covenant with God. With God's grace, it is humanly repairable. Venial sin does not deprive the sinner of sanctifying grace or friendship with God, charity, and consequently does not rob, rob him of eternal happiness. Now that's what the catechism says. And you say, dear one, what does scripture say? In Matthew chapter 5, uh, our Lord says, whoever then relaxes or breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But he who does them and teaches them shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. At least our Lord teaches that there are least commandments a person can break and teach others to do and still remain in the kingdom of God. That is both a good definition of venial sin and perfectly in line with the catechism. And then Jesus goes on to warn us in no uncertain terms that there are other sins that will take us to hell if we do not repent. For example, in Matthew 5.22, Jesus said, whoever says to you, you fool, shall be liable to the hell of fire. He says, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out and throw it away. It is better that you lose one of your members, that your whole body be thrown into hell. So Jesus teaches that there are some sins that will separate us from God for all eternity and some that will not. That's the definition of mortal and venal sin, dear one. If we're separated from God, we die mortally. You know, when a soul dies, when you see a corpse on the ground, uh, you don't say he's died mortally, you say he's dead. Same thing with the soul spiritually. Whoever, Matthew 12, whoever says a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. The statement of our Lord implies that there are at least some sins that can be forgiven in the next life and some that cannot. And they can only be forgiven in this life in order to be in heaven with God in the next. Um, and the Old Testament also has such verses. Um, but I'm not going to read them because our, our, um, our questioner uh, does not have the book of Maccabees, I think. Um, let me just see. Um, First John, here's, here's a major one that I learned as a Protestant. First John 5, verses 16 to 18 says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that is not a deadly sin, he will ask, and God will forgive him. God will give him life for those whose sin is not deadly. But there is a sin which is deadly, mortal. Look it up in the dictionary. It means the same thing, deadly and mortal. John says, I do not say one is to pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin. But there is sin which is not 
deadly. We know that anyone born of God does not sin, but he who is born of God keeps him, and the evil one does not touch him. So there is a sin unto death, beloved. These verses cannot be any plainer that there is such a thing as deadly sin and sin which is not deadly, two types of sin. That is precisely what the church means by mortal, that is sin unto death, and venial sin, sin not unto death. St. John distinguishes the effects of mortal and venial sin as well. Members of the body of Christ can pray for someone who commits venial sin, that is, sin which is not deadly, and life. And healing can be communicated to him through that prayer. But when it comes, that is divine life, the life of God. But when it comes to deadly sin, mortal sin, St. John tells us not to pray for that. This is not meant to say that we should not pray for a person in this state of sin at all. Scripture is very clear we should pray for all men. The context seems to indicate that he is referring to praying that God give the wounded member of Christ life directly through that prayer. And divine life and healing can only come through members of the body of Christ to other members in a direct way if the person being prayed for is in union with the body of Christ. For mortal sin, one can only pray that God would grant the grace of repentance to the sinner so that they may be restored to communion with the body of Christ through the sacrament of confession. To understand this better, consider the analogy St. Paul uses for the people of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 27. The analogy of the physical body of a human being, St. Paul tells us we are all members of the body of Christ. A wounded finger that is still attached to its host body can be healed organically by the rest of the body. That kind of wound is analogous to the effects of venial sin. But a severed finger, however, cannot be healed by the rest of the body because it is no longer attached to the body. That kind of wound is analogous to the effect of mortal sin. So it is with the body of Christ. Just after distinguishing between mortal, which is deadly, and venial, which is non-deadly sins, St. John says, quote, anyone born of God does not sin. We know St. John could not be referring to sin here because he already told us to all sin because he already told us in John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Christians sin. It is clear from the context that St. John is referring to mortal sin here. If we sin mortally, we are cut off from the body of Christ and are no longer in union with God. In that sense, the one who is in union with God cannot sin mortally. This is yet another clear distinction between mortal and venial sins in this text. If, beloved, we are in union with God and we sin mortally, we have cut ourselves off from the grace of God. We are no longer part of this body and there is no remedy except repentance and confession through a priest. Tim says, we've already seen example of venial sins in John 1, 5, 16 and Matthew 5, 19. But when it comes to mortal sin in scripture, there are actually multiple lists of deadly or mortal sins 
in various places in sacred scripture. Our Lord himself provides us with several of them. Matthew 15, Revelation 21 and 22, uh, Ephesians 5, uh, Colossians 3, Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 6. And any one of these biblical texts makes very clear that the biblical data is clearly in favor of, not in favor of, but speaks of mortal sins. Um, and we're just going to cite one of these in Ephesians 5. Um, but you know what? I'll recite this after the break. Otherwise, I'd have to cut it off. When we come back from the break, beloved, we'll have 10 minutes more. I'm reading this article almost at full, not quite, because it is so, so important for every Catholic to understand this and certainly every non-Catholic Christian. Call in with anything on your heart, dear ones. Toll free 1-877-511-5483 or email at mother at thestationofthecross.com. We'll be right back. A prayer to the sacred heart that St. Gertrude the Great wrote. I salute thee, O sacred heart of Jesus, living and vivifying source of eternal life, infinite treasure of the divinity, ardent furnace of divine love. Thou art the place of my repose and my refuge. Enkindle in my heart the fire of that ardent love with which thine own is inflamed. Pour into my heart the great graces of which thine is the source and grant that my heart may be so closely united to thine that thy will may be mine and that my will may be eternally conformed to thine since I desire that henceforth thy holy will may be the rule of all my desires and all my actions. Amen. Atheists assert the only real form of knowledge is scientific knowledge, thus excluding any sort of religious knowledge, whether philosophical or theological. Such a belief is called scientism, and it's unreasonable for two reasons. First, it's self-refuting. Its truth cannot be verified by the scientific method. It's a metaphysical proposition, and as such, is not scientific knowledge. But if science can't verify the truth of scientism, well then, scientism itself cannot be a legitimate form of knowledge, in which case, it's self-refuting. Moreover, scientism undermines science as a rational form of inquiry, because it denies presupposed philosophical assumptions that are necessary to even do science, such as, there's an external world outside the minds of scientists. So, to reject God's existence on the grounds that it's not scientific knowledge is simply unreasonable. I'm Carlo Broussard with a ready reason for Catholic Answers, catholic.com. Welcome to Mother Miriam Live on the Station of the Cross Catholic Radio Network with live video streaming brought to you by LifeSite News and the Station of the Cross. Call Mother with your questions at 1-877-511-5483 or email her at mother at thestationofthecross.com. Welcome back, beloved. Uh, this is uh, Mother Miriam live. I am she. I am happy to be with you live, audio, not video today. And uh, we have about 10 minutes left, and you're welcome to call in, dear ones, with anything whatsoever on your heart, toll free, one 511 
888-528-5483 or email at mother at the station of the cross.com. We are uh, answering an email from Cynthia who says, I've never read anything in the Bible that speaks of mortal of venial sin, nor have I heard that the scriptures came from the church. Can you comment on this, please? Well, we've been speaking till now about mortal and venial sin. Mortal means death. It separates the soul from the grace of God. Venial is more minor, and it does not uh, sever union with God. And uh, Tim Staples has written this article we've been kind of skimming through, and he gives the example uh, of Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 6, where St. Paul says immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is fitting among saints. Let there be no filthiness nor levity, which are not fitting, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Be sure of this, that no immortal or impure man or one who is covetous, that is an idolater, may, uh, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ. the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience, therefore do not associate with them. And Tim says, according to St. Paul, no matter how born again, saved, or whatever you think you are, if you, can, if you commit these sins and you do not repent, you will not go to heaven. That is the essence of what mortal sin means. And dear one, Cynthia, you can go to Catholic Answers, catholic.com, type into the search box right on top, mortal and venial sins. You will get many, many articles on it. And as far as your second point, heard that the scriptures came from the church rather than the church coming from the scriptures. The church began at Pentecost when our Lord poured out his spirit on those thousands of Jews there for the Jewish feast. A Pentecost is a Jewish feast, Shavuot, the, the Feast of Weeks in Greek, Pentecost. And so um, God, and it also became what was the birthday of uh, Judaism, so to speak, at the Simchas Torah, the rejoicing over the law at Mount Sinai, became the birthday of the church at Pentecost. And so it was uh, through, it was God through his apostles and disciples, through his prophets and apostles, who wrote the scriptures. But the church uh, was born at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was born in, poured into all those believers. And that is the church. And our Lord told them to go into all the world to preach the gospel to all creatures. So that was the church. And the scriptures were written by the church. Uh, the church didn't come from the scriptures. If it wasn't the church who wrote the scriptures, who wrote them? Of course it was the church, the prophets and apostles. Without any question, the church existed from Pentecost on. The church was born from the side of Christ. And so, um, again, the scriptures came from the church. Was everything written down? Uh, the Apostle John says absolutely not. Uh, the books, the, the books of the world could not, the world could not contain all the books. It was all written down. But what was written down was from the church. Uh, to us from God through the apostles to us, uh, and the and the uh, the book came from the church. I, I've often given the example that you let's just say you have a great great grandmother. She's in her nineties, 
and you you as grandchildren love her and want to give her the greatest gift of her life. So you spend uh, the last year collecting everything you can of everything she's ever written down, of birthday cards she sent you, of notes when you went away from camp, of even uh, letters, whatever it is. And on her 95th birthday, you bind it all on a beautiful cover and you go to and say, Grandma, this is your life. We love you and we wanted to present this to you. This is everything anyone will ever know about you or need to know about you. And your grandmother will say to you, oh, sweethearts, this is a fabulous gift. But no, everything is not in here, whatever anyone would have to know about me. Absolutely not. The letters came from the family. The family didn't come from the letters. And everything the family did was not written down. What was written down, you've collected, and I love you for it. But what about Papa's lectures by the fireplace? What about our Christmas traditions? What about all kinds of things that would never, everything's not in this book. What is in this book is from the family. But my goodness, uh, the book came from the family. The family didn't come from the book and, and not everything was written down. That's the way it is with scripture, beloved. Um, everything is not in scripture, but what is in scripture is from the church. That is the family of God. Um, and so the scriptures came from the church. The church did not come from the scriptures. And everything that is there for us to know and believe is not in the scriptures. Uh, because there's much that was translated uh, orally. And the same Holy Spirit that kept the scriptures intact to this day, 2,000 years and more, uh, is the same Holy Spirit that kept oral tradition in place. That's why the Apostle saw, says... Um, uh, believe, obey what I've given you, not only in written letter, but orally. Um, not the tradition of men, but the tradition of God that I have passed on to you. Second Corinthians, I can't say that. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. Everything that I've given you, whether spoken or written, um, uh, that is the tradition. Spoken or written, the tradition of God. And you need to believe that. So, Cynthia, uh, you know what you might get is a book uh, written by Carl Keating called um, Catholicism and Fundamentalism. Catholicism and Fundamentalism. Go on to catholic.com, go to their, click on their shop and put in even where the Bible came from. You'll get every answer that is worthy of our faith. Okay. Um, we have an email from someone who writes in anonymously and says, hi, Mother Miriam, I listen to your show almost every morning. I have a question for you. I come from a big family and was brought up Catholic, but did not practice my true faith until a couple of years ago. As I go deeper into my faith, I'm discovering a lot of things in my family that need enlightenment. Most of my siblings do not practice the true faith in their acts. I can name a few incidents such as civil marriage, artificial contraception, not attending regular mass on Sundays or Holy Week, etc. It seems that all my siblings are being influenced by my oldest sister, including my mother. When I'm over at her house, I feel that I am looked at as the superior sister who is trying to practice the faith and be above them all. How do I handle this situation? She keeps hosting everyone at all times, and that's what 
they fall for most of these things, the social gathering aspect. Do I keep going to our social gatherings and ignore what is the right thing to do? That's not a, that's not a choice. You can keep going to our social gatherings, but you never ignore what is the right thing to do. You go to her social gatherings and without a word, you could be a witness to what is good and right and holy without speaking a word. I'm gonna, we're gonna not be able to finish this, um, this email today, dear one. Uh, I'll read, I'll take it firsthand tomorrow, but let me just say offhand that if you're the only one practicing your faith, you are a missionary from God to your family. And the only thing that will ever reach them is your changed life, that you could love them and witness them quietly, first by your life and only by your words when they ask you. Um, you have an opportunity by the grace of God to bring salvation to your whole family. I would not lose that opportunity. Um, beloved, uh, bless you. Live your faith as if it's true, and God willing, we'll speak with you tomorrow. God bless you.